0: 2014 marks the 50th anniversary of the U.S. Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, which was created to advise the federal government on vaccination activities. Today, the ACIP not only provides scientific assessments of new vaccines, but also plays a policymaking role, since the immunizations it recommends must now be covered by new insurance policies under the Affordable Care Act. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Jason Schwartz a research associate in bioethics at the Princeton University Center for Human Values. Dr. Schwartz has co-authored a perspective article on the history of the ACIP. Dr. Schwartz, the ACIP was created shortly after the United States established a vaccination program against polio, diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis. What do we know about the public reception of that vaccination program? Did it require a major public relations or public education campaign?
1: We've seen when we look over the contemporary history of vaccines in the U.S. is a shift from tremendous enthusiasm on the part of the public, on the part of parents for vaccines in the early 1950s and the 1960s when this committee was created, where most famously the vaccines against polio were heralded as triumphs for public health given the fear that came with the disease. That we had a spirit of, speaking generally, remarkable enthusiasm for vaccination programs even when safety events. Emerged in those early times. And clearly, in the years that followed, particularly over the last 10 or 15 years, but even longer than that, a trend in which the perceptions regarding the risks and benefits of vaccines have shifted, and public concerns, at least in some circles, have changed from an atmosphere of anticipation and enthusiasm for vaccination efforts to one that there's a considerable amount of skepticism, at least in some corners, among parents regarding the safety, the necessity, and the value of vaccinating their children.
0: Looking at the ACIP, who are its members today? What's their range of expertise in dealing with that kind of issue?
1: The ACIP comes from an interdisciplinary selection of scholars and practitioners and researchers who touch on several of the domains that are related to vaccination programs. So you have physicians who are working in family medicine, who are working in family practice and pediatrics and infectious disease specialists. You'll have people who are primarily scholars of epidemiology or public health who may work in academic settings, or they may work in state and local public health. So you have a variety of health professionals who are not actively working for the federal government, but who serve a three- or four-year term supporting the work of the Centers for Disease Control and the work of the federal government in figuring out the best practices, the best way to use the available vaccines in the United States, really creating what is widely viewed as the gold standard for evidence-based guidance regarding the use of vaccines in promoting pediatric health, adolescent health, and adult health through use of vaccines.
0: And you say in your article that the work of the ACIP is something of an international gold standard as well. The recommendations of the committee are closely watched by international public health authorities. Can you give some examples in which ACIP policy clearly affected policy in other countries?
1: Sure. So the most classic example, which we refer to briefly in our piece in the journal, is the story of the first rotavirus vaccine, which in the late 1990s was removed from the market following the identification of a rare adverse event. And this rare adverse event was severe enough that the ACIP decided that based on what we knew about rotavirus disease in the United States, that continuing to use the vaccine, at least in the U.S. context, was not advisable. Now, the question may have unfolded very differently for other countries where rotavirus is a very different disease, far more severe in its morbidity and mortality. But as international health ministries, including in developing nations where rotavirus was really a severe threat and remained so years later, there was an understanding and discussions that a vaccine that was deemed unacceptable for use in the American population, which was the determination of the ACIP, was simply not politically viable to be used in developing countries, even where the relationship of risks and benefits is quite different. So that's led to a lot of concern, even though other countries have continued to develop their own immunization advisory groups. The ACIP, because they're the gold standard for their recommendations and the respect afforded their analyses and justifications, that the world watches closely when the ACIP weighs in on what we know and what we don't know about a particular vaccine.
0: You also pointed out in your article that the ACIP has routinely considered the cost effectiveness of vaccinations in its deliberations. Where have those considerations led? Has the committee recommended against any vaccines, either for everyone or for certain populations, on the basis of the cost? And looking, for instance, at meningitis vaccine, will the committee be likely to do that in the future?
1: Yeah, so these issues regarding how the committee has taken into account cost considerations, reflects a broader role than simply just setting evidence-based standards regarding how vaccines can promote the greatest benefits as a result of public and private programs that make vaccines available. The ACIP recommendations also dictate whether vaccines are included in the Federal Vaccines for Children's Program, which is an entitlement program that provides for recommended vaccines for children and adolescents, and in the Affordable Care Act, provisions that require ACIP recommended vaccines to be included among insurance plans. So, beyond looking simply at the scientific evidence about which populations' vaccines are most likely to be beneficial, the committee has begun thinking, and not begun, but really for a good number of years now, considered how the cost of vaccination programs should be considered in developing these recommendations. And we do have cases. We have cases in terms of the ACIP's recommendation a few years ago to, for a time, delay broadly recommending the HPV vaccine, the human papillomavirus vaccine for boys and young men until there was additional data that led to what they determined to be a more favorable cost-effectiveness analysis for the use of vaccine in young men. They got there. We now recommend the vaccine for both genders, but it took a few years for for the ACIP to be satisfied. We've seen it with the Lyme disease vaccine in the 1990s in terms of a narrow recommendation on account of the relative frequency of Lyme disease cases on the national average. And as you noted, we're looking at issues where cost might shape the ACIP's recommendations regarding the newly licensed meningitis B vaccines, which is the strain of meningitis that's caused some outbreaks here on college campuses and some isolated cases and tragically deaths here among college students. We have one newly licensed vaccine that the FDA has approved in an expedited manner. We're likely to have a second And the question the ACIP is struggling with now is figuring out how broadly to recommend the use of a vaccine, which is clearly beneficial, but beneficial against a relatively rare disease. And in terms of the cost and benefits of vaccinating all adolescents versus using it in more narrowed circumstances when there are outbreaks or when there are particular populations at high risk, has this substantial economic ramifications for the use of public health resources. And this is at the top of the committee's agenda. And we'll see the questions of cost and benefit really having a prominent role in what the committee ultimately decides with this vaccine.
0: You argue, though, in your article that this cost-effectiveness analysis would be better off separated from the scientific, clinical, and public health analysis that the committee does. So how would you envision such a separation actually working?
1: Crucially important across U.S. health policy and health policy generally to think about how we can use our health resources most wisely. But the question then becomes how do we do that in a harmonized, consistent way across the kinds of interventions that are available, not just for prevention, but prevention and treatment? And what we see in the prevention world is that the ACIP does its work regarding vaccination practices and does consider cost. Another advisory committee, one that's been in the news itself, the Preventive Services Task Force offers guidance on other preventive strategies, and they don't take cost into account. So there's a question to think about that if we want to be good stewards of our limited health resources, to think about how decisions work across various aspects of prevention and treatment. And it's hard to think of a reason why cost issues would be an important way of setting vaccination recommendations, but wouldn't have a similar role or shouldn't be considered in a parallel way for thinking about cancer prevention screenings or other technologies. So the question is both how we incorporate that across medicine, across the interventions that we need to prioritize, but also then the question of if we think this is an important thing to do, and I think it is in general, is a technical advisory committee of the men and women who work in public health, who work in epidemiology, are they the right group to take on these questions about the methodology of cost-effectiveness analyses, the broader social questions about what thresholds we believe are worthwhile investments of health resources, in addition to their very, very important technical work evaluating the data and evidence regarding the use of the vaccines themselves. It's a lot to ask of any group of experts. And I wonder, and my co-author and I, as we note in our piece, wonder whether or not it's simply expecting too much of a group that already has a tremendous amount of responsibility in helping synthesize what we know and what we don't know about vaccines, even before getting to these questions about the cost and the worthwhile investments of particular vaccination programs versus alternatives.
0: There's been some recent concern about potential conflicts of interest for committee members who have financial relationships with vaccine manufacturers. What's being done to address those concerns?
1: Yes, this is a perennial question for federal advisory committees in general, particularly in health and medicine and for the ACIP in particular. And there have been numerous inquiries regarding questions about financial relationships, whether it's research support or lecturing fees or consultancy agreements between members of the ACIP and principally the vaccine manufacturers and how they're both identified, how they're addressed, and how they influence the participation of individual committee members on ACIP votes and ACIP deliberations. And the question is a tension between two extremes. That clearly the committee is well served by members who are expert in their fields, who are engaged researchers and scientists and clinicians, and often the skill set that lends individual scientists and practitioners to being particularly valuable potential members of the ACIP are the same kinds of skills that would be desired by vaccine manufacturers who are bringing discoveries to market, hopefully. So that creates this question about if we simply exclude individuals from consideration for federal advisory groups like the ACIP, simply because there are some relationships, we lose a tremendous amount of expertise, a tremendous amount of knowledge and experience that can really assist the committee in its work. So the question then becomes, how do we find some sort of middle ground? That There's many views and certainly no consensus, and we understand that the committee has been under scrutiny and is looking at case-by-case bases regarding particular members and particular relationships as they go about evaluating particular vaccines. But clearly, beyond the questions about genuine financial conflicts of interest, perception matters regarding vaccine policy. Public confidence in vaccine policy and vaccines and vaccine decision makers matter as well. So there is also an important role to recognize the public perception that comes from recommendations where there is a connection, whether direct or indirect, to vaccine manufacturers. And the CDC has been and continues to be sensitive about those perceptions and how they might influence public trust in the policies that are being supported by the CDC. So it's a tricky situation where they're looking for a middle ground between two extremes that are not necessarily sustainable on their own.
0: Finally, given the growing hesitancy among Americans regarding vaccination, you suggest in your article that the ACIP draw on insights from health communication, decision-making, social science, behavioral science, in addition to its scientific analysis of vaccines. Given all of that, how do you envision the role of the ACIP changing in the future?
1: It's a great and important issue that the committee and the CDC and other vaccine advocates will have to confront, that we're at a point that it's unmistakable that the visibility and mission of the ACIP has evolved from its historical origins as providing the best analyses of the available scientific evidence to one in which they are now a public face of vaccination efforts, a public face for vaccine best practices. So their role clearly is more than just a technical scientific advisory group, but one that are really thinking about how vaccines and vaccination programs in the United States can thrive, how they can flourish. And what we see in the debates about vaccine safety and alleged vaccine safety Allegations over the years are debates about what kind of evidence counts, what kind of evidence is persuasive, how we know what we know about the safety and effectiveness of vaccines. And what we've seen is that it's not simply letting the science speak for itself, but understanding how parents, how non scientists, how members of the community interpret information about risks and benefits, how what we know about vaccine preventable diseases, the fact that we don't see them very often, thanks in large part to the success of vaccination programs that it's not simply enough to let the science speak for itself, but to understand how different members of communities interpret evidence differently and try and find strategies to help explain in innovative ways that might go beyond our traditional scientific discourses to help parents and the public understand what we know and why the public health community remains as confident and enthusiastic about vaccines as they do. The committee, because of its legacy, because of its contributions, because of its prominent place, is well-positioned to think about those kinds of activities as part of its mission as well. And I think vaccination efforts in the United States would be all the better for that kind of work being seen as part of what the committee can and, in fact, ought to do moving forward.
0: Thank you, Dr. Schwartz.